In this particular section, we're going to be talking about the concept of self-image. I know whether you remember back to those days when you were a little boy or girl and you used to do an awfully lot of dreaming. This old fat stuff used to do a lot of dreaming when he was a kid, I want to tell you. And uh, I used to kind of fantasize about self-image, what I was going to be. I knew at a very early age that God had given me an unusual talent for speaking, and so I, I had a crazy fantasy. I used to sit in back at church, and I don't think many people ever dream of something like this, but I could hardly wait till the day came when I got up in front of that audience and I could talk. It's a, it's a strange thing, but I thought, boy, then they're not going to call them fat stuff anymore. I used to live for that day. I had a lot of other fantasies about what I was going to be. I had very active imagination. Politician, deep sea diver, and on and on and on it goes. As I watched my four children grow up, I noticed that one of the struggles that they have, of course, is arriving at really what they're going to be. What is their mental picture of themselves? And I think as we grow older, we have that struggle. Well, we come out of school and we have an idea of what we are, and as we grow older, those ideas become disillusionment. We know we're not quite what we expected to be. And as I watch young people nowadays, I see that that's happening to them already. They don't have to wait till middle age or older. Suicide is one of the leading factors in the death of so many teenagers, simply because they can't find a fantasy, I guess, to carry them along just can't find anything that really attracts their imagination as to what they'd like to be or what they think they really look like, and they can't stand themselves as, as they really are. So whether you're living in a fantasy world of what you'd like to be or in the world of disillusionment and you know that you are not what you'd like to be, either world is untrue, and both are a lie. Jesus Christ came to save us, not just from everlasting hell, and not just from past sin, but he came to save us so that we could look at ourselves and have the most fabulous, beautiful, infinite, glorious self-image that would just set us free. And so, let's talk about that now. Begin, you may open your notebooks to part two, self-image. And we'll just define that self-image as a mental image of my true identity. And of course, if you're going to find out what your self-image is, you have to know pretty much who you are. And that's the problem with self-image. We, we don't really know who we are. We've not really discovered our identity. Now, there's some new material that I want to add as we go along here tonight that's not in your notebook yet. I'll warn you about this. But in this particular section, I want to do two things. I want to discuss with you the basis of our self-image and then I want to talk about how you build a new self-image. And really, that's a poor choice of a word because you can't build it. The self-image is something that happens to you, and it happens almost unconsciously. But for the sake of parallelism, we're going to talk about the basis of self-image and the building of a self-image. When you look at the basis of self-image, you say, now, I've got to have a mental picture in my mind of what I really am. And the question is, what am I? Well, the first answer, possible answer, is that I am my old nature. Now, that old nature is many things. It's self-dependent or it's independent. It's very limited. 
It's filled with failure. It is inadequate. And it's temporal. It's just really not the greatest thing to build a self-image on. And yet a multitude of Christians have taken as their theme text, misguidedly so, Paul's great statement, the good that I want to do, that I don't do, and the evil that I don't want to do, that I do. Oh, miserable man that I am. And that seems to be the theme text of their life. Dr. Hukeman, an, an excellent little book, and I trust you're interested in pursuing this, and I highly recommend that you get that book, called A Christian Looks at Himself, tells of a girl who was converted to evangelical Christianity. Before she became a Christian, she had a fantastic self-image. Really great. And she went to this evangelical church and heard about sin and about worthlessness and about how terrible she was, and she became morose and she became depressed. Finally, she became reacquainted with the writings of Rogers and, you know, of Rogers and Maslow and gradually threw off the teaching of Christianity and returned back to her old bubbly self-image once again. It's a rather hard story to look at. And yet, so many of our churches are doing that. I'll never forget several years ago preaching in a church in Chicago. And after I read the law, I made two statements. I said, aren't you all thrilled that you're no longer totally depraved and that you're perfect in the sight of God? I was asked by the church council before the evening service to give them the assurance that I would never say something like that again in their pulpit. And if I didn't give them that assurance, I would not be able to get back in there to speak. They didn't really want the good news of who we are in Jesus Christ. Sometimes some of us, in preparing for communion, go through a week of morbid introspection. It almost seems to be geared to remind ourselves that our self-image is to be built on the fact that we're totally depraved and sinners and just so terrible. So often when I've come to church and the very first thing I hear in the worship service is Ten Commandments thrown at me, as if this is some kind of Santa Claus religion where if I live up to that I'm a good boy accepted by Jesus, and if I don't I'm a bad boy, and I just am not too certain of my position there at all. I think the main problem that most of us struggle with here tonight is the fact that somehow, somewhere along the line, we have received the misguided information that our self-image is to be based on our old sinful self. And that the more we beat ourselves and the more we think about that sinful self, the more sanctified we are. And that just simply is not in the scripture. Well, the alternative to building your self-image on your old nature is to build your self-image on your new nature, Right? Your new nature, what is it? Well, your new nature is Christ-dependent. You're depending upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Your new nature is of unlimited value. Your new nature is victorious. Your new nature is powerful. Your new nature is perfect and eternal. That's what I am. I'm a new creation in Christ. Until tomorrow, when those thoughts of lust come back in my mind, right? It's just not satisfying. To know that I'm just all set. Now, there's something still wrong with me. I don't like to build my self-image on the fact that I'm a sinner, but I can't build my self-image totally on the fact that I'm perfect in Christ because I know I'm not. Know that there's something wrong there. Something still isn't meshing. It isn't going right. 
And so most Christians today wander in a morass. Just who am I? What do I really look like? I get all excited for a few moments about what it means to be in Christ and then the next moment I'm blowing my cork and I'm, I, I'm selfish and I just don't like myself. Well, could it possibly be that I'm both? That I'm something like a butterfly in a cocoon. And my old sinful nature is that cocoon and my new being is a butterfly and I'm trying to get out and I know that old cocoon, you know, isn't going to last. That old cocoon is my flesh, and that's doomed. And I'm the new me. I'm that new butterfly, that new spirit being. I'm just trying to get out, and I'm not fully developed yet. I'm in a terrible, painful struggle. Is that who I really am? Well, I'm not going to answer any one of those three questions right now. But I want to do something with you. Not in your book. I want you to perhaps take some notes at this point. I want to go to the scripture with you tonight and ask the question, who am I? And under that question, I'm going to ask four sub-questions. I'm going to ask, first of all, what died in you and me, what lives in you and me, where does it live, and what does it look like? And we're just going to let the Bible speak and see if we can come up from the scripture with some basis for our identity other than just wandering in the morass of total depravity or going over into the whole area of perfectionism or somehow straddling the fence between both. Just who am I? Who do I really look like? So let's begin, you want to copy these down, with who am I? And the first question is, what died? Now something in me died. There's no doubt about that at all. The Apostle Paul states that so clearly in Galatians 2.20, which is really the key text of all that we're saying here tonight. It's the key text of the whole mystical union, Christ in us. I was crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Or as another translation has it, I die. Now I'd like to have you just think about that. What is that I? What actually died in you and me? Now to die means it's no longer there. And then if you study Romans 6, verses 2 through 12, you'll notice that in virtually every single verse, the Apostle Paul mentions death. He says in verse 2, we died to sin. Verse 3, we were baptized into Jesus' death. Verse 4, we were buried into death with Christ. Verse 5, we were united with him in his death. Verse 6, our old self was crucified. Verse 7, anyone who has died has been free from... And on and on and on it goes. Now, now what's Paul talking about? What once existed that does no longer exist when I become a Christian? And I believe that the only answer to that is this twofold answer. That the museum died, the independent I. That I that I just got through talking about. That, that me that says that John DeVries is a composite of his looks of his speaking engagements, of his money, of his fame, of all the great trips he's taken, that old me, that old way of looking at myself is totally dead. That was crucified. That's gone. That museum doesn't exist anymore. It died. It was crucified. Perhaps it's a little clearer if you go back to that other illustration of the deep sea diver. Remember that deep sea diver, that fellow that thought that he could uh, get his 
his life from his good looks and from his suit and from the treasure that he had. And so he spit out his lifeline. Well, that fella died. He's got his lifeline hooked up again. Now, you can't have a museum like Mount Vernon and the White House in the same thing. It's got to be either one or the other. Either somebody lives there or he doesn't. Either the deep sea diver's got his lifeline connected or he doesn't have his lifeline connected. You can't have a deep sea diver who doesn't have a lifeline any more than you can have a lady who's half pregnant. It just doesn't work that way. It's one or the other, folks. You're either a museum or a White House. You're either a diver with your lifeline in or out. You can't have it both ways. just doesn't work. Now, when Paul was writing to those Galatian Christians, he was arguing against the doctrine of works, the doctrine of legalism. And his argument, to paraphrase it very loosely, runs something like this. He says, you know, you, you, you people are saying that we've got to add something to Jesus' death. It's not enough that Jesus died for me. I've got to be circumcised. I've got to do this. I've got to do the next thing. And, and, and on and on it goes like this. He says, don't you know that that old way died? Doesn't exist. Not here anymore. Something new has come. Well, that brings us to the second question then. What lives? What lives inside of me that didn't live before. Now, I want to answer that with three scripture passages. There is within me today, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 7, a totally new creation of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 reads, listen carefully, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old is gone, and the new has come doesn't say that I've got a lifeline out one side of my mouth and something else out the other side of my mouth. doesn't say that I'm half a museum and half a mansion. It says that John DeVries today is a new creation in Christ Jesus. And then you go on to John 1, 13. I am a new person who was born by God. We saw that passage a few moments ago. I am a child not born of natural descent nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but I have been born of God. I want you to think about that. Does God make halfway products? Consider it. Think about it. I know you don't want to walk this way and, and everything within us resists it and it's just the toughest pill to swallow, but that's why we're so messed up on motivation and who we are and liberation. We don't really understand our identity in Jesus Christ. And the devil doesn't want you to understand it. If there's any one thing he doesn't want accomplished tonight, is that the lie that he's been telling you about who you are be taken away. You really come to understand what a Christian is. Then we go back to that text in 1 John 3 verse 9. Oh, what a difficult text that is. How many of you here, and I'd like to show a hand, how many of you here believe that when a Christian dies, he goes to heaven immediately? Just raise your hand. Okay, all of you believe that, huh? You don't have to go to purgatory? You really don't think so? Then that means that there's something inside of you right this very moment, isn't there? That's fit for heaven. Because I don't think that there's anything that sinful can get into heaven, right? 
You should die tonight, says the old question, and stand before God in judgment. Why should he let you into my heaven? So many people have said to me, I think God will ask that question. I think God will ask that question. And the question, the answer to that question is that there has been created within me something created by God. I am a new creation deep down inside. And as of this moment, brother, sister, that new something, that mysterious something in which Jesus Christ lives is ready for heaven. And if God takes me at this moment, I'll be in glory. I don't have to have that part of me sanctified or purged anymore. I'm ready to go home right now. And what I'm saying to you is, Find out what that thing is, that new part of you, and start building your self-image on that. That new part of you is described in these three texts. Take them home and think about them. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. I've been born not of natural descent or the will of man, but by the will of God. Whoever is born of God has the righteousness of God within him. Now let's go on and ask the third question, and that's this. Where does this new person live? <laughs> now we're starting to get into things, huh? And here we're going to turn over to Romans 6. This is still part of your additional note-taking. Romans 6. And we're going to look at a few verses in 6, 7, and 8. And I've been so intrigued with verse 6 of chapter 6. Now listen to this carefully. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless. Now you notice that Paul uses two different terms. We know that our old self was crucified. Our old self was taken away. That old deep sea diver that spit his lifeline out and was laying down there at the bottom of the ocean, dead, he's gone now. That museum, that Mount Vernon has been taken away. I'm the White House. I'm a deep sea diver with my lifeline connected. But where does that deep sea diver live? Oh, hell, he lives in the body of sin. Ah, okay. Now, what is that body of sin? Well, you go to verse chapter 7, verse 17, and you'll find out that that body of sin is still a very powerful thing. As it is, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me. Now, I'm not certain whether Paul wrote this about his pre-conversion experience or post-conversion experience. There's so much argument on this particular point. I'm going to take it for the time being as post-conversion. He looks within himself. He looks within this body of sin, and he says, man, I'm not ready for heaven. I'm a mess. Look at all the struggle I'm going through. Look at all the difficulties I'm having. Look at all the sin. What's the conclusion that Paul comes to? The conclusion is that he is a new person in Christ and that that new person lives within the body of sin and that body of sin has tremendous power. But then he goes on. And he says something very interesting next, that that body of sin is not me. Verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me. It says the same thing in verse 17. It is sin living in me. This is very confusing language. And I do so wish that it would have been a little bit clearer. But the Lord chose not to do it. It's very, very deep and very profound. And it just simply has to speak to you. What Paul is saying, I am a new creation. God made me what God makes is not filled with sin. God can't create unrighteousness. 
What God made in me, what's born of God is without sin. But that lives within this body of sin today. And that body of sin still has power. But that body of sin is not my identity. That is not who I am. It's here, but it's not my identity. I am responsible for it. Oh, don't ever forget that. Over and over and over again, the apostle reiterates the fact that we must mortify the members of this body of sin. Romans 8:13. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Oh, he says, there's power in that body of sin, and it can come and it can get you. It can really hurt you. The thing that you have to do is put that body of sin to death. But then he goes on to say in those glorious verses, 24 and 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And then 8, 9, and 10, you are controlled not by that body of sin, but by the Spirit of the Spirit of God lives within you. And oh, how true that is, my friend. Let me tell you how it works. I'll give you a very practical illustration. I'm a new being. Jesus Christ made me whole. I have the righteousness of Jesus in me, and yet that new being lives in this body of sin. But who am I? In September, the ministry magazine of Seventh-day Adventist Church devoted the issue to homosexuality. And there was a eight- or nine-page interview with a homosexual who claimed to have been a Christian for 20 years and yet just in the last few years had found victory over his homosexuality. I was so fascinated with how he found his victory. He said, I started to look inside. I started to search for my real identity. And he said, you know what I found inside of me? <laughs> Same thing I found inside of me. Jesus Christ. He said, I started to ask myself, do you think Jesus Christ is homosexual? He said, no. Jesus is heterosexual. Well, he says, that's the real me. He said, you don't know how I was liberated and set free. And he said, over the next six months, gradually those old homosexual tendencies and desires were just taken away. Not totally and not completely. But he said, I found, as I discovered my real identity, a whole new power over this vicious habit that I couldn't break in any other way. All I did was look inside and I said, who am I really? And the answer came back, Jesus, he lives in you. Your real identity is covered by his righteousness. And this is a lie that the devil is telling you that you're a homosexual. This is a lie that the devil is telling you. You're an alcoholic or a sex fiend or whatever else is bothering you. If you're born again, my friend, and lives within you, the most beautiful, beautiful person. Take a look at him. What does that new person look like? He is just absolutely so gorgeous. That new person, and this again is some more notes that you're going to have to take, that new person down inside of me, first of all, is Jesus Christ. And I go over the Gospels and I look at all of his beauty and all of his love, and I look inside of John DeVries, and after 45 years of looking inside of John DeVries, it's still such a shock, because when I used to look inside of me, you know what I saw? 
I saw a very frustrated individual. I saw a man who had perhaps a few unusual gifts in speaking, but a man who always had to have more. He was always very insecure. When the first three rows in church were empty, he was all bent out of shape because he felt his speaking values were slipping and he wasn't quite as worth, quite as valuable anymore. I looked back at my terrible selfishness. I looked at my goals and dreams in life and what I wanted to accomplish and what I wanted to do. I just was a driven man, driven by the sense that I was a failure and I had to prove to the world that John the Reef wasn't a failure. And then all of a sudden, you know what I discovered? <laughs> there he was. He was an old museum. I found out that that museum had been occupied and Christ came back in and there was a new John de Vries and <laughs> there wasn't any way, friend, that he's ever going to fail again because Jesus is not a failure. And I'm united to him. came to me so beautifully that morning in Washington when I turned to Psalm 27, verse 1. And I preached on that so often and I never saw it this way. The Lord is my light. And I always kind of thought that that light was out there shining down on me. And God said, hey, why don't you look a little deeper? And I found down inside here that that light was inside of me. And I thought, what does light mean? Well, light means all the beauty. And I thought of all the beauty of the sunsets and all the beauty that God has made and all the beauty of Jesus Christ. And it blew my mind that that was the new me. Not a failure. Beautiful because of Jesus Christ. All his beauty resides in that new creation which he calls John de Vries. That's what my identity really is. And friend, it's never going to change. I don't have to worry again. I want to tell you, you can't begin to describe when you finally got the key to stop the roller coaster. You can start feeling those emotions. They still go up and down, but they're steadied and awfully lost. I looked inside again and I saw victory. Now unto him who was able to do exceeding abundantly above all we can ask for a man by the power at work within us. I often thought Paul was so exaggerating when he said in Philippians 4.13, I can face everything, he says in life, in the one who daily infuses power in me. Look inside of you and see Jesus. See all his beauty, all his power, all his perfectness, all his fullness. John 7, 38 says that whosoever believes in me from within him shall flow rivers of living water. That's who you are if you're a Christian. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're born again, that's what your identity really is. It's housed in this body of sin, but it's a new creation, born of God, ready at this moment for heaven, and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It looks like it. He's your friend and you're united to him. Well, that's the basis of a new self-image. But I just want to say a few words in the ten minutes that remain about how to build a new self-image. You'll note, go back to your books, I don't know just exactly what page this is on, 
But the old thing says a new self-image, and I want to retitle that building a new self-image, if you can find it there. It's one thing to understand what your identity is, but it's another thing to really get out and to experience and to build that new self-image. I, uh, I hesitate a little bit to use this example because so many of you know who I'm talking about, but nevertheless, I don't think he would mind. When I was here at this institution, we had a professor who easily took the prize for being the worst-dressed professor on campus. That guy just was absolutely impossible. Come with a plaid sport coat with a striped shirt and checkered pants. Or one day he'd wear a purple coat with a brown pants, and I don't know what all. He had some of the wildest get-ups that you ever saw. He had been married, and his first wife had died. And he fell in love with a very attractive and beautiful lady. They got married. <laughs> wow, you should have seen the transformation, man. It was just day and night difference. Here he came like a fashion plate to class. Why, he had just the best color-coordinated clothes on that you've ever seen. Now, I don't think this professor sat down and consciously said, I'm going to change my self-image. <laughs> No, that's something that happened to him because he fell in love. He began to reflect the one who loved him and whom he loved, and those love experiences began to express itself in a whole new self in him. I believe that's what Paul had in mind when he talked about the fruits of the Spirit. That's something that happens to you. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, long-suffering, kindness, meekness. Self-control. Man, those aren't things you go out and manufacture. Those are things that happen to you because you're so happy. You're so filled with Jesus. You just love him so much. That just pours out of you. And in conclusion on this lecture, I, I just want to share three basic love experiences. I'd just soon have you close your book because I can't get through all that stuff in the book anyway. And I'd, <laughs> I'd rather just talk and tell you those experiences. You can remember them. You can look back in the book and you'll find them out there. When we fall in love with somebody, there are three basic love experiences. There's, first of all, the experience of being loved. Secondly, the experience of giving love. And third, the experience of reflecting on love. When you fall in love with Jesus Christ and he becomes your new identity, then you have that kind of experience. There's, first of all, the experience of Christ loving you. Now, so many of us have trouble with that. We say, well, how does Jesus love me? And I would suggest that Jesus Christ loves you in two ways. He loves you, first of all, through his hands, through his body. And his body, composed of the other Christians. pastor tells the story of a young mother who was, was very, very sad. She had lost her little child. As he came calling on her, her own mother, the grandmother of the child, was there, and this mother was weeping profusely, saying, Why doesn't Jesus love me? Why doesn't he care? And the grandmother was there holding her daughter's head and stroking her back, and the pastor went up and very quietly touched the grandmother's hand and said, My daughter, don't you recognize the hand of Jesus? Life can be one perpetual love affair with Jesus if you let him love you through other Christians and you recognize their acts of love as his tender touch to you. 
Last night I made a call on one of our families who's been in some trouble. They told me that in the last few days a couple people from our church stopped by. She said one of them hauled out of his pocket a wad or a roll of bills bigger than anything she'd seen for a long time. Just pressed it into their hand and walked away. She said, isn't it so beautiful to be loved by Christ? She recognized her Savior in that person. Jesus loves you and me through the love of Christian fathers and mothers, through the love of Christian friends in church, through constant fellowship. Jesus loves us directly too, not just through the love of others. And I've had some experiences with that in the last few weeks and months that have been so beautiful. I came across this little description of the direct love of Jesus in another book. This man writes, I have come home from meetings thoroughly tired and disappointed and disillusioned. I settled down in an armchair with bitterness in my veins instead of blood. There was a desire to write a letter calculated to crush my opponent. I was too tired to pray, too tired to stir up any desire to pray, and then I tried an experiment. I relaxed my body and my mind, and I left, as it were, the door of my mind ajar. There was little more than a vague longing for the coming of the friend, that friend who stands, who understands our worst moments without losing faith in our best, and then something happened. That which is indescribable flooded my whole spirit. A hush which is inevitable quieted my mind. I didn't see a vision, I never heard a voice, but I felt that the last thing I wanted to do was write that letter. The last words I wanted to use were those which would have brought down my opponent. There was only one explanation. God's greatest gift to me was given and accepted. My friend had come. I know that all of you have experienced Jesus' love for you through the love of other Christians, but have you grown to that spiritual level? where you've taken enough time privately with Jesus to just simply sit back, where you move beyond prayers of petition and prayers of meditation out into that area of just simply being loved by Christ and knowing that he's there. Religion is not, first of all, psychology. It has tremendous implications. It's not, first of all, a set of principles of positive thinking, although it has an awful lot of that. It is, first of all, a relationship with the resurrected Jesus Christ. And it's more than propositional truth. It's a living person. And that person loves. And if you aren't going to take time in devotions, and you aren't going to take time to pray, you're not going to have time to let him love you directly. You need a whole new self-image. And that self-image can come from understanding who I am, but that self-image is built on the experiences of every single day of being loved by Jesus Christ. But then there is the experience of loving Jesus. You've all heard stories about this, I'm sure. There was the man that just prayed so that Jesus would show himself to him he prayed over and over and over, and then one night he got a vision. He thought Jesus was really going to show himself. And, and the next day he went through the whole day, and the Lord never appeared to him. He got home at night, and he just wept before the Lord. He so wanted that ecstatic experience of meeting Jesus. 
And then suddenly the Lord did speak to him and said, Samuel, I met you today, but you didn't even recognize me. Remember that widow that came in your store? You had a kind word for her and she slipped a few groceries in her bag. Remember Sam the bum that walked in? You never kick him out. That was me, Samuel. That was me. And you loved me. And I showed myself to you today the way I wanted to. Do you know, my friend, that every single day, including this day, your Lord Jesus Christ has stood before you in so many different ways. You loved him. You loved him by caring for that person. By having patience. Malcolm Muggeridge did a television program on Mother Teresa. That great saint of God who works in the streets of Calcutta. Mother Teresa was, was asked at the end of the program, why is it that your work is different? You pick up all these old ladies who are dying. Isn't this a glorious work? But isn't it just humanism? What makes it different than the Red Cross or any other social agency? And Mother Teresa looks back with a face that almost seems to be glowing with heaven itself. And she said, well, Mr. Muggeridge, you have to understand that I love Jesus. And you see, I can't see him. And so every time I see one of these old ladies dying on this street, I see my Jesus. And I just love that old lady like she was my Savior. I want to tell you something. Mother Teresa doesn't worry about self-image. She's just so filled with the love of Christ. And she looks at every single poor person around her as a Savior. And she loves that person. She lives in a constant love relationship with him. Being loved by him. Giving love to him. Then there's one final stage. and That's reflecting on that love. Every now and then my wife and I try to get away. We have some time together in which we just think about what God has done. We have some time of devotions, and normally during that time we never complete it because we're both bawling by the end of the time. It, 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 it's such a, a tremendously emotional period as we reflect over the love and over the good times and over all that God has done in blending our lives together. My friend, that's what the Bible calls us to do with Jesus, to walk hand in hand with him, late on a starry night, to look up there at the sky and say, Lord, I can't believe it. I just can't believe it. You've made me a whole new creature and you've covered me with your righteousness and you've made me sit in heavenly places and you've assured me that your victory is mine and all your beauty dwells within me and I look back over my life and all the love that you've given me, oh Lord, my heart just burst. So that's what a new self-image is. That new self-image is, is that God is in you and God is love. And God just fills you with that love. And when you look down inside of you, you see that new being that is the beauty of the love of Jesus Christ. You're not an old, depraved sinner. You're not a worm. You're not a wreck. You're a whole new creation in Christ Jesus. Sure, you're housed in a body of sin, but that body of sin will be falling away. Someday, 
someday it's going to be made glorious. Just as Jesus put a new spirit within us, so he's going to give us a whole new body. But the real need, that new spirit, perpetual love with Jesus Christ, being loved by him, giving love to him, reflecting on his love, that's what glory in heaven is all about. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis has one phenomenal scene. The scene of a woman coming out of heaven and walking to where the bus comes up. And the man is standing there and he looks at this woman and he says, Surely, surely this must be the mother of Jesus, Mary. For she's surrounded with animals and children. has got a tremendous procession with her. And the man says, No, that's not Mary, the mother of Jesus. That's Mrs. Smith from B Street. He never even had any kids. Well, there wasn't a stray dog or a stray cat she didn't take in. There wasn't a kid around that she didn't love. In that glorious process of allowing the love of Christ to flow through her and she loving others and being set free from self-pity, she obtained from being last on earth the position of being first. Who are you? <laughs> Praise God tonight. You're born again. New person filled with the love of God. And listen, my friend, if you're not born again, you can do so right now. Christ can come in. He's standing there waiting and he's knocking. Maybe you've been in church all your life. Maybe you're not certain right now. I'd like for us just to bow for a few moments in prayer. To pray if you if you are a Christian, recommit yourself and ask the Spirit of God to show now your real identity. If you're not a Christian, pray with me. But that old Mount Vernon be changed into God's wife. Let's bow. Lord Jesus, we ask tonight that you will be with each person here who does not know you. Each person here who's still a museum Pray right now in these moments. We'll come in. We'll change. Lord, so many of us here walked with you for so many years. Some of us like me. <laughs> we really are. How I pray right now. Spirit and work. Rip away the lies of death. No feelings of failure and frustration, depression, and worship. God, what we have. You've made us be. This be a new moment for each one of us as it's been for so many of us already. Whether you've just moved in for the first time, whether you've just Go our way rejoicing that you're there. The old way of looking at life is done. New creatures in Christ, born by your will, filled with your beauty and love. Please accept our sacrifice, our love.